Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them uh, to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. As you're finding your place, I want to welcome all those who are joining us this morning, even those that are online. Uh, Reach Church DeSoto, the venue service right down the hall. I'm excited for Reach Church and uh, the sending out of their first mission team uh, completely of folks from Reach Church. And so Reach Church, we're praying for you and excited for you. A lot of firsts. Uh, last weekend, they uh, ordained their first group of deacons at Reach Church DeSoto. Now they're sending out their first mission team. It's an exciting time at Reach Church, and, and we're, we're grateful for each and every one of you and grateful that you're here this morning. We come to 1 Samuel 15, and uh, I'll be honest with you, when I began the study of this and uh, preparation for this weekend, uh, there was much fear and trepidation. Uh, there's a lot of parts of this, this chapter that are difficult and, and deep, and, uh, and then there's nothing like a good hacking of a king in Agag uh, to get you fired up for the Word of God. These are not the, the stories you hear in the children's golden book of uh, Bible stories, but uh, uh, they're there. Uh, but what I learned this week, I'm so grateful for even the difficult parts of God's word. And uh, I love it that we here at Lenexa Baptist, we just walk through it. And, uh, and my prayer this morning is that uh, our study of some of these deeper things would uh, do as it's done for me this week. Um, convict us of sin. Uh, you know, this uh, preaching for me is very personal. Uh, because the word of God cuts me first. And uh, so please know, I, I hope you know this, I get fired up about preaching and I'm passionate in the pulpit, but I, I hope and pray you never discern that I'm preaching down at you. Um, God has been working on me. And uh, the beauty of God's word is even the difficult parts bring us to a greater understanding and worship of the God we serve. Uh, don't be afraid of the difficult passages of God's word, but come with a teachable, humble heart to learn, and the Holy Spirit will open your eyes. And so I just say that to kind of say me and Pastor Jim, we're talking this week about the cookies are sometimes on the top shelf. Uh, the cookies are kind of on the top shelf, but I'm going to try to bring them low uh, because I'm a simpleton. Uh, and that's the way it's got to be for me, and hopefully we'll all draw closer to God as a result this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll begin. God, we, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We recognize this morning that we would have no way of knowing who you are unless you revealed yourself to us. And I'm so grateful, God, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come before the inerrant word of God, we would recognize that every word of this passage is God-breathed. It's given to us to reprove, to correct, to train us in righteousness. And so, Lord, we, we say, teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, we're so grateful for the work that you do in our hearts of illuminating our minds to the truths and the principles of your word. And so, Holy Spirit, please move in our hearts, move in our minds this morning that we might understand, that we might hear, and ultimately 
that we might obey. Give us hearts to obey your word. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me. We've got a lot of ground to cover in communion a little later, so let's begin quickly. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. If you remember, uh, there has been a disconnect between Saul and Samuel due to Saul's own sin and disobedience. There's kind of been a, a going of separate ways. And the word of God, for a period of time, we don't know exactly how long, but the word of God has been absent in Saul's life due to his sin and his disobedience. But in the graciousness of God, in the kindness of God, again here we see the word of God. We see Samuel and the word of God through Samuel again come to King Saul. And I just wrote in the side of my Bible a second chance. Really probably more like a third, a fourth, or a fifth chance. But it's as if God is saying to Saul again, I'm coming to you as my divinely anointed king. I'm coming to you with another word and with another mission. We're going to give you an opportunity to try this again. And so God comes to Saul and says, let's give it another go. Let's have another shot at, at obedience to my word. And so it says in verses 2 and 3, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and Utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. He gives to King Saul a, a terrible command, a command to bring about God's divine judgment on a group of people who have sinned against God, who have rejected God. We look at this and some will see in this a, a glimpse of some form of genocide or, or ethnic cleansing. Please know that is not what's going on here. This is not imperialism. This is not about gaining ground or Israel gaining ground. This is about God being a just God who reserves the right to judge sin in whatever way he so chooses. We must understand this, that God is a righteous and a holy God, and he's a righteous and holy judge. Um, and he reserves the right to punish sin. And God has declared long ago, probably around 300 years earlier in Deuteronomy 25, uh, the Amalekites were a group of people that as Moses was leading the people up from Egypt, that they were extremely cruel they're uh, from the Edomites. They settled east of the Jordan, and they were incredibly cruel to the people of God. In fact, as the people of God were wandering the wilderness, it was the Amalekites who would wait and find those who would straggle behind the weaker of Israel, and they would pounce upon them, and they would kill them. And in Deuteronomy 25, God says, I will not forget what they have done to my people and how they have rejected me and how they've harshly treated my people. And he told Israel, in Deuteronomy 25, he says, at some point, you're gonna get into the land and you'll have peace with your enemies and then I'm going to use you, Israel, as the instrument of my divine justice to blot this people out from the face of the earth. God is a just God, a holy God. 
Some people will look at this and say, you know, that's the God of the Old Testament. But the God of the New Testament is not a God of judgment. Listen to me. It's the same God. He is a God of judgment in the Old Testament. He's a God of judgment in the New Testament. In fact, Peter had some false teachers in 2 Peter who were saying, God is not a God of judgment. He hasn't judged. He will not judge. And Peter reminds him, listen, he didn't spare angels. And he didn't spare the people in Noah's day. And he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And one day he will bring about his divine vengeance and justice on those who have sinned against him. We need to remind ourselves of this. Listen, do not think that the day has changed. And just because God has not judged, he will not judge. And uh, in our world, he reserves the right. Uh, The government does not bear the sword for nothing. Uh, government is ordained by God to bring about judgment upon this earth, but ultimately judgment will come when Christ returns. You remember we studied this in Revelation. Uh, How long, O Lord? Well, he's coming. And when he comes, his judgment is terrible. And also be reminded of this. We, we in many ways are Amalekites, and we deserve the just wrath of God. All of us stand in a place of divine punishment and the wrath of God. We're objects of wrath, sons of disobedience. We would go here too were not for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we would have no leg to stand on. It was not like we could accuse God of being unfair. No, we've all sinned. And we all deserve the just wrath of God and his judgment. So be reminded today, God is a God who loves, and we'll see it in this text too. And he's a God who saves, and we'll see it in this text too. But he's also a God who judges. He is just and righteous. It's his right to punish sin. Then look at verse 4. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul is going to start out in obedience. And... uh, But this caused me some concern. (laughs) It may be nothing, but whenever you see the kings of Israel begin to number their armies or their people, it's normally uh, viewed in a negative light. And again, I think we see here the real heart of Saul, who is always trusting in what he can see with his eyes rather than God. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So all of a sudden, in the previous incident, when he didn't have a very large army and the army was fleeing from him, he had no confidence. Now he's got a large army and it appears he's going to move forward with confidence. His confidence is based on the size of his army rather than the size of his God. And listen to me, whenever your confidence and your faith is tied to anything other than God, you will always fluctuate in your confidence in life. Make sure the ultimate source of confidence in your life is tied to God. His confidence sways because the size of his army got smaller. the, The quality of your faith is always tied to the object in which you place your faith in. And so... Uh, He numbers his army. In verse 5, Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the city. In verse 6, Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I don't destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And I believe this is another demonstration of obedience. 
He's being kind to the Kenites. Who are the Kenites? Well, the Kenites, you remember, uh, they, uh, Moses would marry uh, Zipporah. Uh, many believe that the Kenites were a tribe within the Midianites, but he is going to marry Z- Zipporah and Jethro, and these are Kenites. And they would join up with the people of Israel. In many ways, they would convert to Judaism. These are Gentiles who can divert to Judaism. Moses says to them, Jethro, your family, these Kenites, come with us. God will bless you. And they did come with the people of God. And they bought into the people of God. Remember, Israel was intended to be evangelistic. And, uh, and so they gather in the Kenites and they come under the umbrella of God's lordship and they, they join up with the people of God. They join the church of God in the Old Testament, which is the, the nation of Israel. And they... And they know the blessings of God. And they help Israel. They knew the wilderness, unlike the people of Israel. And they helped guide them through that. And Jethro gave great counsel to Moses. Um, In fact, uh, I was reminded of this uh, in Judges chapter 4. There's a lady named Jael. And uh, you remember Sisera falls asleep in her little tent. And what does she do? Brave woman. She takes a tent peg and runs it through his head. She was a Kenite. That's what scripture says. These are people who loved God. They were Gentiles who bought into the people of God. And so probably uh, Saul through Samuel has learned of the Kenites and we need to get them out because they're God's people. They're, They're part of us. Now you know what you see here? You see blessings and curses. What did God, Deuteronomy 25. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. You see blessing and curse. You see salvation and judgment in the midst of about four verses in the Old Testament. Those who will acknowledge God, the one true God of Israel and his Messiah will know his salvation. But those who reject the God of Israel and his Messiah, Jesus Christ, will know his judgment. What a powerful picture of blessings and cursings, even to some extent the gospel in an Old Testament passage. And then it says in verse 7, so Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And so uh, Saul achieves a great victory. Great victory. He pushes them all the way to Egypt. And in all the other uh, battles that Saul has faced, there's been some level of opposition. There's been obstacles to overcome. But it appears in this instance, God gives Saul great victory. A massive victory. Push it over an extensive A stretch of ground all the way to Egypt. What an amazing victory. Now, if you hadn't read on in the story, if you don't know what comes next, and you were there, and you're sitting with King Saul, what would you have said to him at that moment? I know what I would have said. Saul, here it is, brother. You've done good. God has been faithful. How gracious is God? He's given you a second chance. And God has blessed you and you've done well with the Kenites and now you've pushed out the Amalekites and you've exercised his judgment on those people. And I would have said to him, Saul, now follow through. Follow through. I know it's hard. Not an easy judgment to bring about. But follow through. Utterly destroy them. Utterly destroy them and it'll go well with you. What do we see next? Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, 
and the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. Saul, it appears, believes that the commands of God are flexible. It appears that he believes God gives to him some flexibility in his commands. And if he sees fit to do a little differently, or if you think a little better than God, then go ahead. In other words, you could describe this as partial obedience. And listen to me, what we will see very clearly here is that partial obedience is disobedience in the eyes of God. Partial obedience is disobedience in the eyes of God. It's a difficult thing. He looks at this situation. I've carried through on most of what God has given to me. Surely he will not mind if I keep some of this to myself. Surely he will not mind if I keep back some. And so for a desire for glory and gain... He walks in disobedience. Is the same temptation very real for us today? That we know what God has said, but our desire, our fleshly desire for glory, make no mistake, the keeping of Agag was not an act of sympathy. Uh, a, a leader would spare the king and strap him to the front of his chariot and parade him around as a trophy for how great he was. This was about Saul taking some of the glory unto himself. This was about Saul's own desire for personal gain. And so many people today, they will disobey God in areas where God is clearly given direction because of their flesh their desire for a little glory or personal gain. I only have to, this, this time of the year, bring up the issue of taxes. Nobody hates taxes more than me. I get so angry, especially when I see what they spend it on. But I am to submit. And some would say, well, I'll keep a little back. It'll give me more to tithe on. <laughs> Listen to me. Partial obedience is disobedience in the eyes of God. Well, how will God respond? And by the way, the evidence that this was not imperialism is evidenced by the fact that God says, you keep none of this. This is not about loot. This is about judgment. It's all, it's kind of return to sender. They're mine, you send them back to me. I'll deal with them. Don't keep anything. How will God respond in light of Saul's disobedience? Will God say, well, it's okay, you know, I mean, he tried, he did a good job, you know. What will God do? Look at verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Saul saying, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me, has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. <clears throat> now we come to a part of this that has caused so much consternation for so many and quite literally for me much this week. It says there that I, 
I regret. This is God speaking. I, I regret. Some of your translations may say repent. Some may say grieve. Some may even say I'm sorry that I have made Saul king. And we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? What does it mean when God says that he regretted? That God regretted having made Saul king. And in fact, if you look down in verse 29, we'll get there next week. But in verse 29, it says also, this is Samuel speaking, also the glory of God will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a guy that he should change, not a, not a man that he should change his mind. The, my translation translates it differently than verse 11, but it's the same word in the Hebrew. So it says, God says, I regret. Samuel says, God doesn't regret. And then you get to the very end of the chapter and uh, verse 35, the Lord regretted. And you ask yourself, well, the, what is it? Did he regret or does God not regret? I, I think we've got to understand that the, the author of this book knew that he wrote all those words. And the word of God never contradicts itself. So what does this mean? What does it mean that God, God regretted? Well, I think the great danger for us is when we read words like this, that we would begin to think of regret in the way that you and I regret. You and I have regret because we're sinners and we're weak. We regret because we make mistakes and sin, and we say to ourselves, I wish I could go back. I wish I could undo that. That's how we regret. What, what Samuel is saying in verse 29 is God is not a man like us. His regret is different than our regret. So please understand when it says that God regretted, it doesn't mean that God was sitting up in heaven and say, boy, I goofed up on this when I wish I could go back. That is certainly not the case. And that's what Samuel means in verse 29 when he says God doesn't change. Listen, God is immutable. He never changes in his decrees. Did God know what Saul was going to do? Yes, he did. In fact, Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. God declared in Genesis 49, he knew it before the foundation of the world, but in Genesis 49, he reveals it to us that the scepter will not depart from Judah. The ultimate king's gonna come from Judah. God knew it. He knew every aspect of the story. He wrote it. Remember, history is his story. So God is not changed. Although from our perspective, it appears sometimes that he's changing, God does not change. He's immutable. But what this tells us, God, uh, so many times in his words, is, he gets down on our level and he uses words as, as best he can to describe what God is experiencing. And... Uh, we have to be so careful. We need to tread lightly on this. But I believe that what God is expressing in this, what we learn about God that we wouldn't know otherwise apart from this story of Saul is that while God is immutable, while God wrote this story, while God orchestrated this story and was sovereign over it, he is still in some way affected by the sin of Saul. That God loves God is, is immutable, but he's not a piece of stone. He's not a piece of granite that God does feel. And I, I have to be very careful. We have to be very careful when we start talking about emotions because God is not some one of, one of the mythico, mythological Greek gods that's capricious and flies off the handles. He's totally in control. He's immutable and unchangeable in his ways and his decrees. But what this tells us that in some way that we can't possibly comprehend with our finite minds, but in some way, God feels our disobedience. And I don't know about you, but as I read that and studied that this week, 
It grew my worship of a God that I can't fully understand, but a God who has condescended to a level to help me taste but a bit of what he tastes when we walk in sin and disobedience. That's what this means. God feels. And in that way, he regretted having made Saul king. And he's turned back from following me. And Samuel was distressed. He cried at the Lord all night. You know, I, I, Samuel, the more I study him, the more I grow in my admiration for this man. Remember, this is the guy who was essentially operating as king, not technically a king, but operating as much, and they rejected Samuel. They said, Samuel, we don't want you. And God tells him, well, ultimately, they weren't rejecting you. They were rejecting me. But, but Samuel, there's no way. Samuel is a man just like us. He probably to some extent, took that personally. You don't want me. I think we've been doing pretty good with me and, and God working this deal for you. And, but they wanted a king. God said, we're going to give them a king. And, and I think uh, when I read that portion of it, I, I couldn't help but think there's a part of Samuel having been rejected by the nation. When he gives them King Saul, there's a little bit of, now let's see how you like this. You asked for it. Here he is, Saul. You don't like me? Try this guy out. He, he's, he's the guy who will succeed him. And oftentimes it's, it's difficult for a man who has a successor to really pray for his success. Especially when the group has rejected the guy who preceded him. But we see the heart of Samuel here as he sees the failure of King Saul. He weeps all night long. And it tells me that Samuel truly loved Saul. Samuel truly wanted Saul's success, not just for Saul, but for the glory of God and the good of the nation. And I don't know if this applies to any of you, but God help us if we ever get to a place where we see brothers and sisters in Christ fail and there's any element of joy in our hearts. God help us when we see anybody walk into sin and disobedience and the thought goes into our minds, well, they're getting what they should have got. But let our hearts be hearts that grieve. And stay up all night. I, uh, I can't speak for all pastors or even secular business leaders, but I think of Samuel staying up all night. And here's what I try so hard to put my myself in Samuel's shoes. And I think one of the reasons that Samuel stays up all night is because he knows that he's going to have to have a conversation with Saul. Any of you ever know you've got to have a conversation, you've got to confront somebody? You've got to do something that you don't really want to do. But you've got to do it. Because it has to be confronted, it has to be addressed. And that's what I thought about in this. I thought about the times in my life and in my ministry where I stayed up all night because of a conversation I didn't wanna have, but God says you're not getting out of this one. And you gotta have it, and you gotta address it. And it causes us to weep and anger. And, and, Frustration. I, I, I wonder if the conversation between Samuel and God wasn't like <laughs> something like this. God, when, when I was in the temple, little boy, and I said, here am I, I didn't sign up for this. 
I wanted the good parts, not the difficult parts. I think that myself sometimes. God, I just want the good parts. Not, I didn't sign up for these parts. And God says, Samuel, you'll have to do it. Not easy, but you have to do it. And so look at what it says. Verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. He's going out to meet Saul, and he finds out he's already built a monument. Monument, he literally means a hand. He's given himself a hand. Set up a monument for, for himself, and then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. Gilgal is significant in so many ways. Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. Isn't this just like Saul? He sees Samuel just like he did in 13. He runs out to him and says, Oh, bless you, Samuel. I've done good. He tries to cover his disobedience in a lot of religious language. The one thing that you'll see about Saul, he'll come to a point where he eventually turns to witchcraft. But prior to that moment, the further he gets away from God, the more religious he appears. Be wary of the person who's always showy in their external religion. Because more than likely, they're covering a heart of disobedience. Well, look at what Samuel says. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Samuel says, you're speaking obedience and I'm hearing disobedience. You're telling me one thing, but I'm seeing something totally different. Verse 15, Saul said they have brought... Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. He says, they, (laughs) all of a sudden, it's a democracy, (laughs) like the people rule. They did it. You're gonna very quickly, you can do a whole study on sin just on the base of this chapter. You, you partially obey, you justify it, then you play the blame game. Somebody else's fault. They, they brought them out. They spared the best. Why? To sacrifice. We disobeyed you so that we could worship you. It doesn't work like that. All your religious service cannot cover a disobedient heart before the Lord. And so what does it say? Then Samuel said to Saul in verse 16, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. The way I picture this is Saul's giving his excuse and Samuel interrupts him and says, stop it. I think Samuel's had all he can hear. Stop it. Stop talking because you're just digging a deeper hole. Let me tell you what the Lord told me last night. Saul says, speak. Samuel said, is it not true that you were little in your own eyes? You were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? 
See, Saul says, they made me do it. These people, that they, they, they pressed upon me. I did, I, you know, I was somewhat reluctant about it myself until they presented the plan to me. And it sounded good. And yeah, we wanted to be religious and spiritual. And they kind of forced me to do it. And do you know what I think Samuel is saying to Saul? Listen, you're not a follower. You're the leader. Cut it out. You don't, you are not, your actions are not determined by the people around you. You are committed to doing one thing, obeying God. Boy, I read this, and to me, it was like bright lights, God, neon lights saying to me, listen, in all of our decision-making, I was thinking and pondering this this week. When we make decisions, when we have issues in our life, it is good to get godly counsel. I would encourage you to get godly counsel, but make sure that the loudest and clearest voice in your life is the voice of God. You cannot shift the blame. You know, I think sometimes we like to press the easy button. Well, I'll just go ask somebody really spiritual and they'll tell me what to do. God doesn't want you to go ask somebody spiritual. He wants you to ask him. Go to him in his word. He is a God of direction. And let me be honest with you. Sometimes great spiritual counselors, and I'm speaking as one who sometimes gives, we can be wrong. I tell people all the time, now listen, I'm telling you, my counsel and quarter will get you a cup of coffee, Maybe. I'm a sinner. I'm trying. I'll try to give you counsel on the base of God's word. But in so many areas, there's times when you yourself have to go to God's word. And you have to see. And you will be held accountable. And you cannot say to God, well, I sinned because Pastor Chad told me. So I'm off the hook, all right? Don't come blaming me. That's what God is saying to Saul. You're responsible. I told you, not them. You were to obey. And you're responsible. You're accountable. And what is it? Rushed upon. It's the same word that's used in 1432 when the soldiers, because they hadn't eaten, rushed upon the animals. Now Saul has done it. In verse 20, then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And it brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. Do you hear that? Rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Let those words sink in. These words really don't need a whole lot of interpretation. In fact, if I speak too much, I'll make it unclear. Here is the point. All your external religious activities and services to God cannot cover a heart of disobedience. That you cannot go and walk in sin and disobedience on Monday morning and think it'll be okay because you showed up to church on Sunday. You can't come to the table of communion as we'll do this, this morning and think that that is going to cover your weekly disobedience with God. It has no meaning to God if there's not a heart of obedience behind it. All of these, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they had no atoning power in and of themselves. They were symbols pointing to the substance of Jesus Christ. What God wanted was the substance of a heart that loved him and obeyed him and a heart that loves him and obeys him will overflow 
grow in sacrifice and worship and, and faith without works is dead. But it doesn't work the opposite way that somehow I can, I can just obey God in these service externalities and check the boxes and think that it will somehow cover over my heart of disobedience and sin. It doesn't work that way. God wants a heart that's completely devoted to him. A heart that seeks to obey and boy, don't miss it. He says, if you have no heart of, or a heart of obedience, then your sacrifices are essentially witchcraft. You know, he's saying, you might as well be worshiping an idol. And what's interesting about this is you move on further in Saul's life, guess what he will do? He'll participate in divination with a witch. God wants hearts that are given to him in obedience. Listen, I, uh, you can't help but see in this chapter the underlying theme of a holy war. It is there. And certainly we know today that we're not called to holy war in the same way that Israel was called to holy war. But make no mistake, we are as much engaged as a real, in a real and terrible spiritual war today as they were back then. We are at war with our sinful flesh and the weapons of the church are spiritual weapons of prayer and the word of God. And what hit me this week, God wanted the Amalekites gone. Much in the same way that God, when they went into the land, eliminate the Canaanites. I don't want any syncretism. What will happen is they'll start infecting you. You've got to rid yourselves of these folks. And just personal application for me this week is I pray that I would have the same attitude towards sinful behavior in my life. That I wouldn't abide it, but I would cut it out at all costs. Because if I don't have a heart to obey, then all the other stuff doesn't matter to God. Now listen, we look at this and man, Saul makes a mess of it. And David, does he get in trouble? That's the problem. You have these guys that they think they can back God into a corner. You know what I think Saul thought? God's gotta have me. I can, you know, I can pretty much do whatever I wanted to. No man can back God into a corner. You're not that important. Can God set down King David? Yes, he does. Does God set down Saul? Yes, he does. Did God, when Moses, you remember Moses, Gentile wife, says, ah, this circumcision deal is not a big deal. God says, I'm about to kill him. He says, I'll just start over. I'll find somebody else. I had a seminary professor who used to tell us, you wanna know how indispensable you are to God's kingdom service? Put your hand into a bucket of water, remove it, and the hole you leave is how indispensable you are to God's kingdom work. God doesn't need you. And if you contend in sin and disobedience, he can set you down too. What God wants is a heart of faithfulness and obedience. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you this morning for your sin that demonstrates to us your holiness, your righteousness, your judgment, but also your grace. And God, there's still hope left for Saul. Saul. 
we won't really see it even next week, even with a little bit of repentance there. There really is, again, no real heart. But God, I pray if there be anybody here today that doesn't know you, that's walking in sin and disobedience, the lie of Satan is that God's holding out on you. That God's laws and his ways, just as Adam and Eve thought in the garden and the lie of Satan, God's holding out on you. It's the same lie that's used in the lives of men and women today. That if I trust Christ and really commit myself to him, I'll miss out on some of my own glory and my own gain. And it's a lie. God, I pray that they would know this morning there's no greater joy, there's no greater peace, there's no greater fulfillment in all the world than walking in fellowship with you. I pray that they would turn to Christ. They would repent of their sins and turn towards you. It's what we long to see in Saul's life. Because we know, God, you're a God who is inclined to forgive. And God, I pray for those of us that do know you. God, we, just like Saul, we got ways of justifying our sin. We like sometimes to pick and choose. I like that command, but not this one. God, I pray that we would be reminded that Partial obedience is disobedience. And God, I pray that we would return in repentance and faith. We would eliminate and wage war against our fleshly bodies and our sinful hearts. That we might walk in obedience to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.